our sermon later on in the services will be about the abundant life. John speaks of this in his gospel in chapter 10, verses 7 through 10. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. I'd like you to turn to Luke chapter 6. We'll be in verses 20 through 26 today. So as we turn our eyes towards scripture, I want to share with you this. When I was a young man, um, adolescent, uh, between that and 30 years old or so, I, I thought I had everything. I thought I had the world by the tail. And uh, I used to tell my, my young wife my, that I can do anything. And she would always come back with, I hate when you say that. And I, I didn't realize what she was saying for a long time. Uh, because I felt like if I just worked hard enough, if I just drank deep enough of everything that the world had to offer, that I would somehow be happy. I became disillusioned over that, and I'll tell you a little bit more about that later. But I want to turn to our passage today. And I want to give you the context of this particular passage, and this context is really important for us to understand. So Jesus has established his credentials. He's shown his power. He's chosen his apostles. There's 12 of them. And after he does all that, he goes to a multitude. There are uh, the apostles are there, the disciples are there, uh, there are Gentiles there, the multitude, there are people from literally all over the known world at that time, and he puts on this spectacular display of power by healing everybody that's there and delivering everyone that is there that is struggling with spiritual problems. And so the, the context is that Jesus has made these choices, he's started this very rudimentary teaching, He's demonstrated his power, and all of that leads to what happens next. And what happens next is the greatest sermon ever preached. Now, Luke has a little bit of a different version of the Sermon on the Mount that we see in Matthew. Um, some people call this the Sermon on the Plain, and there's some biblical scholarship debate over whether or not there are two different sermons or there are two versions of the same sermon. Uh, the general thinking is that as Jesus moved throughout Palestine, uh, that he did his teachings time and time again. Um, need I remind you, they didn't have the internet. There was no TV. There was no radio. So for Jesus to reach as many people as he needed to reach, he probably taught the same things over again. That's probably what we have here. And so we have the beginning of a very important sermon. And what we see in this passage are we see two kingdoms that are direct opposites of each other. The first one is the kingdom of God, which is in verses 20 through 22. And the second one is the kingdom of the world, the exact opposite of the kingdom of God. And that's in verses 23 through 26. And so within these seven verses are four blessings 
and their opposite contrasts. Four blessings and their contrasts. The blessings portray the kingdom of God. The contrasts portray the kingdom of the world. And the strange truth about what we see here is that there's an attraction that we as human beings have to lean towards the kingdom of the world. Jesus lays it out plainly, but the kingdom of the world draws us. So our sermon for today is called The Opposite Attraction, and we're going to look at these blessings and their contrasts one at a time. So we're not going to go through this line by line, but we're going to produce the blessing and then look at its direct contrast at the same time. So here are the four blessings. Now, I want you to listen to this carefully because God calls this, these things blessings. They are the blessing of need, the blessing of hunger, the blessing of sorrow, and the blessing of persecution. Now, those may not sound like blessings to you, but I hope by the end of this passage to convince you that they are. So I want to start with the blessing of need. And this is in verse 20. Jesus has just healed everybody and delivered everybody that's come to listen to him. And in verse 20, it says, and he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. So Jesus is talking to those who follow him, to those who he would call his people. Um, They're not fully realized yet. A lot of them are going to leave. But Jesus is talking to those people that are his. And so that means he's talking to them and to us as well. So he lifts up his eyes on his disciples and said, blessed, I want to talk about this word for just a second, This is the Greek word makaroi, and it it means happy, but there's a deeper connotation to it. And the deeper connotation is one favored by God. So one favored by God are you who are poor. Now, it would be easy to think that this is a designation for a social economic group, but that's not what Scripture tells us. Uh, this is the, the Old Testament, uh, generally when it talks about the poor, it's talking about the pious. You can see that in Psalm 40 and Psalm, Psalm 72. You can check that later. Matthew calls the poor, the poor in spirit. And what he's talking about is those who are, who are not self-reliant, those who are not self-satisfied. So Jesus turns to the disciples and said, God favors you who are poor, you who are not self-reliant, you who are not self-satisfied, you who are poor in spirit, for yours is, and it says is, it doesn't say will be, the kingdom of God. So those who rely on God, those who, who are sustained by God, those who trust in God are called the poor in spirit, and they're blessed They're favored by God. Now, the contrast to this is in verse 24. And and it says, but woe. And the meaning for woe here is misery. But it has a deeper connotation as well. And it it infers the anger of God. So, but woe. The anger of God is upon you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now, we have to be careful with this. This is not an indictment of of having possessions. It's not an indictment of having a lot of money, but it's a caution against believing that you have no need, that everything around you satisfies you and completes you. 
So it's a caution to those who are self-reliant. It's a caution to those who are comfortable, who rely on themselves and their own capabilities and maybe on their belongings. Now, that should cause us a moment of reflection, especially for those of us who are comfortably embedded in a prosperous culture. And I I know that I'm talking to people that are all over the economic spectrum here in the United States, but if you have traveled outside the United States, you know that even the poorest among us live like kings and queens compared to what's going on in other countries. So we have to be careful with this. We have to listen carefully to what Jesus is saying. We who are rich by any earthly measure are constantly tempted to rely on our belongings and think that they can make us happy. And the question we have to answer is, can we have them yet not rely on them? We who are rich can be dulled to our spiritual need by the plenty that surrounds us. Can we have plenty and yet feel our need, feel our need for spiritual growth, for spiritual redemption, for regeneration? We who are rich tend to be proud of what we've done to take credit for Uh, all of our comforts and all we've accomplished. And the question is, can we live a humble life? So there are three questions that we each have to address. Can we have things yet not rely on them? Can we have plenty and still fill our spiritual need? And can we have a humble life? And if the answer is no to any one of those questions, we may be in trouble. We may be in for a struggle. If we find ourselves in need of anything other than Christ and his righteousness, we're in danger of living in the kingdom of the world and not in the kingdom of God. Now, that doesn't mean you're doomed. Stick with me on this. Have some patience as we look at the blessing of hunger. Verse 21a. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Now, Luke, again, it would be easy to think that Luke is talking about physical hunger, but we can look to Matthew for context again, and Matthew speaks of spiritual hunger, of of a need inside for something bigger than ourselves. And, And scriptures seem to agree with that. If we take a look at Psalm 42, uh, verses 1 and 2, uh, it's a familiar passage. It says, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 63, verse 1 says this, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. All of these speak of a passionate, deep-seated longing for righteousness. Our spirits cry out. Our spirits long for a peace that goes beyond our understanding that can only be found in Jesus Christ. John knew this. He says so in his gospel, chapter 6, verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Talk about hunger. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, 
and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Our spirits, we long for, we hunger for something bigger than us, something beyond us, something eternal. Now, the contrast to this is in verse 25a, just down a little bit more. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Now, this is a warning to avoid becoming full of the world, to avoid uh, relying on the world to complete us or to satisfy us. Don't, don't let the world let weigh you down is what we're hearing here with things that seem valuable but are not eternal. Don't become encumbered by them and think that they can complete you because there's a deeper need that our souls have. If we hunger for the world, we'll fill ourselves with it and no longer hunger for the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at the blessing of sorrow. Blessed are you who weep. Now, this is a release of sorrow. This is an inner grief that comes pouring out. Weeping in the same sense that we find weeping in, in Psalm 125 and Psalm 126 and Psalm 136. You can look again at those later. Where God's people weep when they see the condition of the world that they're living in and compare it to the kingdom of God. This is weeping over sin. It's weeping over corruption. It's weeping over decay and a longing for deliverance and holiness. And so for those who weep for those things, there, there will be a time for them to laugh. Now, for you shall laugh. And laugh is a release of joy. Weeping is a release of sorrow. Laughing is a release of joy. The contrast to that is in verse 25b, the second half of verse 25. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Now, this is talking about the people that are laughing and making light of sin. Those who slander God, those who, who work against his children, those who take joy in injustice, those who, who take happiness in unholy living. Inevitably, they do it with a smile. They do it with a, a smirk on their face. And these are the people who have an inability to weep over the right things, yet find it easy to laugh over the wrong things. They're having their fun now, but their joy will turn to tears when they realize the price that they have to pay for embracing the kingdom of the world and rejecting the kingdom of God. Let's take a look at the blessing of persecution. Verse 22. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Now, there's something we want to put out on our church, Marquis. Come on in, join us. Be hated, be excluded, be reviled, be spurned. Now, Jesus is not pronouncing a blessing on these unhappy experiences. He's not telling us to slap a smiley face on the trials and the hardships of life. But he is saying that there's a blessing on those who have a relationship with Christ and are identified with him. Jesus expects that his followers 
his followers will be clearly identified with him. And because he went through all these experiences, he was rejected and mocked and spurned, that his followers will suffer the same experiences, and they're blessed because they are associated with him. And we see the contrast to this in verse 26a, the first half of 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. This is interesting. Notice it says all people, when all people speak well of you. That means the majority of the population. And I, I got to tell you something, that can't happen without compromise. Many years ago, uh, I was invited to be a representative uh, for one of the political parties at our state convention. They put us on a bus. Uh, we all talked on the way down. Uh, we got to the convention, and I'm thrilled to be part of the democratic process. They're putting issues out before the convention and everything, and, and every time they would discuss an issue, they would gather us all together and say, now, here's how you're going to vote when it comes to the vote. And at one point, I, I kind of put up my hand and said, well, wait a minute, wait, don't we get to vote uh, our feelings, our, our convictions? And the, the leader of the group looked at me and said, look, you have to understand that if you want to get elected, you have to compromise. You can't get elected if you don't compromise. It's the way of the world. If we want the population to be in favor of us, we need to compromise. Now, Scripture tells us that we need to be well thought of by outsiders. We can see that in 1 Timothy 3, 7. But it doesn't mean that we need to be accepted and need to be popular. You know, I always get apprehensive when somebody comes up to me and says, have you seen this Christian book? It's number one on the New York Times bestseller list. That means that it's number one. Everybody's buying this book. Everybody's reading this book. And this is exactly what Jesus is talking about here in verse 26a. If the world accepts it, then there is compromise involved in it. Jesus cautioned us against that type of popularity. John 15, 20. Remember that the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. There used to be a popular saying, that, and it goes something like this. Even a dead dog can swim with the tide. Yeah, we, we're alive. We're vibrant. We have the Holy Spirit in us. There's something different than us, than the people in, in the world. And we have a message we have to bear, and we need to understand that that message sounds like foolishness to the world. But as believers, we're called to swim against the tide, and hold our relationship with Christ as a higher priority than our relationship with the world. Hold our relationship with Christ as a higher priority than being liked and loved by everyone, because being liked and loved by everyone will include compromise. We should be wary of popularity. We should also be careful of following those that are popular. Uh, so we see this in the contrast to, to this, this popularity idea in verse 26b. 
Because Jesus says, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. For so their ancestors did to the people that had errant teaching. They spoke well of the false prophets. And those false prophets became wildly popular because they tickled the ears of the people that were listening. They told them what they wanted to hear. They made everything sound easy and just do this and do this and and then you can achieve this. And so people followed them in droves and they led people away from God and into the world. And we have this, right in the middle of the passage. I mean, we've been bouncing back and forth and back and forth, but right here in the middle is verse 23. And we, we find this, and, it, and it, you know, when you see something like this in the middle that doesn't seem to be associated with everything else, it's, it's an important part of the entire passage. So Jesus says, once you've been blessed with need and hunger and sorrow and persecution, verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. Four blessings, four opposites, four examples of the kingdom of God, and four contrasts in the kingdom of the world. Now it's pretty clear when we look at this, but here's our problem. The world can be attractive. It's this glowing jewel that draws our eyes to it. It can be very attractive. And if we fall, if we allow ourselves to fall victim to the world, we distance ourselves from the kingdom of God. This is kind of where we started. Our attraction to the world could prevent us from truly living. And the lie there is that if we do all these things, then we'll truly be alive. But Scripture says that, that that's not the case. Listen carefully to me. If, if you're saved, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, now following the world will not prevent you from going to heaven. Nothing can do that. But it will cause you to miss life at its absolute fullest. Now, Jesus tells us this, again, in the Gospel of John, in chapter 10, starting with verse 7. Listen carefully to this. So, Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The thief is the way of the world. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it, what? Abundantly. They may have life abundantly. Now, the Brill Dictionary of Ancient Greek, a very well-respected lexicon, says it abundantly, is in a refined manner, with elegance, richly, magnificently. We can have life magnificently, elegantly, richly, in a refined manner. God's people are the poor, the weeping, the hungry, and the hated. The world is the exact opposite. 
God's people have a reward in eternity. It's glorious. And it should not be deceived by the way things look or how things may be difficult at times, maybe even right now, and discouraging at others. Our then is far more glorious than our now. Their then is far more painful than their now. But we can enjoy the abundant life right here, right now. You can have it today by rejecting that that glows with attraction, by rejecting the opposite attraction of the kingdom of the world, and by embracing the kingdom of God. Jesus died so that we could have this opportunity to become uh, uh, holy. Uh, we're, we're talking about a process in our lives called sanctification. Jesus drawing us closer and closer to him. And the closer we get to him, the more we realize the world doesn't really have anything to offer us, and Jesus has everything. That takes work. But it's it can satisfy us. It can fulfill us. You see, that was a mistake I made when I was younger. I tried to satisfy myself and fill myself with things that were not eternal, with things that could never satisfy me, that could never fill me. Praise God, he revealed himself to me. Maybe he's revealing himself to you right now. Maybe you hear the call of the kingdom of God. Or maybe, maybe you're sitting at home and say, the world doesn't have a hold on me. I don't rely on my belongings. I want to challenge you on that. What would you do if somebody took one of them? How would that make you feel? Maybe you think you don't want to be popular. Let me challenge you on that. What do you do when you find out somebody doesn't like you? What do you do when you find out in particular somebody doesn't care for you because they think you're a fanatic, a religious fanatic? You know, my mom called me a, a religious fanatic one time. And all I could say was, praise God, I am. <laughs> That's who we are. We're fanatics for Christ. He wants us not only to be part of his kingdom, but to introduce other people to it. Show them what it looks like. I pray that this rests in your heart and draws you closer to him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. Knowing, Lord, that you haven't given us these scriptures here to condemn us, but to refine us, to draw us closer to you. So, Lord, we thank you for pointing out our shortcomings, knowing, Lord, that you've given us the Spirit to deal with them, to, to work in us, to, to make us holy, to sanctify us, Father, to bring us closer to you so that we can be a better witness, a more effective testimony to your love 
and your grace. We give you praise, Father. We give you honor. We thank you, Lord, that those of us who call upon you as Lord and Savior uh, are part of the kingdom of God. We thank you for those of us who are listening that are not part of the kingdom, Father, because you've shown the pathway that we can repent from our sins, ask for forgiveness, confess that your Son is Jesus Christ, your only Son, and find eternal life. We pray now, Father, that you bless us. In Jesus' name, amen.